Welcome to Cardboard Philosophy, the board game podcast where we talk about nothing serious, seriously. Each episode, we randomly pick from a list of niche, deep board game topics and have at it. So we invite you to join us at the table, listen in on our conversations, and let us know what you think. Welcome to episode two of Cardboard Philosophy, a podcast that went well enough last week, we decided to do it again two weeks later. Uh, I'm Evan, and joining me as always is Robert and Steven. How are you doing, guys? Great. Amazing. Uh, as always, starting the podcast with a quick die roll, figure out what we're going to talk about, and then launch into it. Uh, and we're coming up with number 32 on our 33-sided die this week. Uh, which is what is decision space? All right, Robert. This was uh, one of your questions. What uh, What do you want to do with this? All right. So the kind of questions I have that I want to dance around and maybe even dance with eventually are: Is decision space the amount of decisions? The quality of them? Is it a feeling? Is it something else? Like I wrote a metaphysical space, whatever that means. I don't know what that word means. It just sounds smart. Um, but I often hear people talk about decision space. So sometimes I will even say, I didn't find the decision space that interesting. So at that point, I'm almost describing it like it's some feeling or some like atmosphere I'm in, I'm in. And then other times I might mean there weren't that many decisions. So I'm just curious what you guys consider decision space and why. I think for me, it's quality a little bit less than it is quantity. If we're talking like a Lacerda, I'm not necessarily going to make a lot of decisions, but there's a lot of branching decisions where, you know, if I go here, it's going to cause a chain where I'm going to get some resources and I'm going to have to pay some money and then I'm going to get a worker that I can then play on my next round. While that's like three different things, I could also do the inverse of that. And maybe I, you know, instead of paying the money, I'm paying the resources, but then I get money, which is kind of putting me into a more advantageous position next round to, you know, spend more. So I feel like for me, that's what I'm looking for. If I'm looking for a game with a good decision space is not necessarily I have to make 30 decisions on my turn, but one or two that will matter. I immediately thought of like the decision tree you know like if you had to program out the game in like a computer game format or something or even just map out or write down like if you just wrote down every choice you had to make right like that's where it is how many of them but also you know is it the same decision over and over again is it different ones are they kind of related you know there's 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 a few different factors but i kind of think of the space as that diagram or that would be at least one way of looking at it. So for you, it's more about ever branching and ever expanding possibilities. Well, actually, I should say there's kind of two ways I could, I feel like you could sort of take it or look at it. There's that, there's like the diagram of it, the charted out version. And then there's, to me, like what I would call the mental model, right? Like what I think of when I'm playing the game and what I think is going on and what I think matters and how I think, you know, sort of, I'm imagining in a movie where it's all animated or, you know, there's scribbled over it or something when I'm looking at the board, you know, what my brain is kind of imagining is happening. You guys are kind of talking about this as though it's something you look for actively in a design, like a good decision space. This is something that you uh, qualify a design with, you know, like how, how good is its decision space? Yeah, I feel like 
the game is making decisions. So the quality of them, how repetitive they are, how interesting they are, that all feels like the game itself. So I don't know at what point something becomes the decision space versus just the game. I think decision space is almost a foundation for those other conversations because um, I'll use a game like uh, Wingspan as an example. I don't find the decision space to be deep enough in there. And I don't necessarily find the rewards for those decisions that you're making to be rewarding enough because in that game you basically have four choices you can play a bird you can get food you can get eggs you can get cards and you can like chain stuff together depending on which row you're playing your birds into but at the end of the day to me it always feels like the decision is kind of being made for you by the game oh i have one card in my hand i don't want to play it i need to draw cards Oh, I've already exhausted all my rows. I need eggs so that I can lay more cards. I'm going to get some eggs. Oh, I have six bird cards in my hand and a lot of food. I'm going to play a bird card. That is very similar to how I feel about Fort. And I know many people who love that game, including people who love Wingspan. And so that makes me feel as though decision space is not some objective, well-defined space, for lack of a better word. Uh, it's it has very much to do with the the person so it is a foundation of a game but you can put the same person uh in a game and the decision space for them is different Mm -hmm. so you know maybe we're just bad at fort and wingspan respectively but the what matters at the end of the day is how we feel how big we feel the decision space is or how interesting we feel it is or whatever adjective to throw on there so i guess from your comment my conclusion is it's definitely a subjective thing. Okay, how about this? It's, there is a, I feel like there's sort of a both. There's, objectively, it is sort of the list of decisions that you're going to make throughout the game. Like, if you had to journal what you're doing and why, that is what it is. But then, me, I'm going to write my journal differently than the way you're going to write a journal. They're both a journal, but... I'm going to choose different words and I'm going to describe it differently. And the way I think about it and the way I connect, like I'll say, I am doing this because I want to try to take over that area. Maybe that's not even how the game works, but that's how I'm thinking about it. You know, I like that. So that's where the the, the subjective side comes in is how I'm journaling. But at the end of the day, the, the decision space, quote unquote, is the list of choices that you're making. So the decision space is constant, but our interaction with it varies by how we think. Yeah. And then I think there's some, I think there's also some potentially like objective variables, say for example, how repetitive it is. How often are you making the same decision or are you making a choice between the same three options? So I think we're saying you can objectively define the decision space and then the adjective you put before it is person dependent. So for me, it's an interesting one. For you, it's a boring one. For them, it's a repetitive one. For somebody else, it's fascinating. Whatever, the adjective before decision space is all subjective. So I'm, I wanna kind of put that to the test. What is a game we have all played and we think many people have played? Like, can we define decision space for that game? Um, what's a good one? High society. High society. Yeah, I love that. Okay. Okay. It's pretty simple. Too. Uh, I'll give a 20 second overview of it before we talk, just in case somebody doesn't know. Seems useful. Yeah. Uh, it is an auction game where everybody has the same hand of cards. 
each card has a dollar value on it. So imagine $2, $8, $20. And what you're auctioning on are larger cards, which have numerical values between 1 to 10, and some other funky stuff we'll probably mention along the way. But the idea is every round you auction off one of those cards, say the seven-point card, and you keep going around until everybody except for one player has passed. That player pays their money and gets the card. And the catch is, at the very end of the game, whoever has the least money left in their hand is automatically disqualified from winning, regardless of how many points they might have. So that's, in a nutshell, high society. So what's the decision space? How much do you bid? It's yeah. the ascribed value. Well, that's the only decision you're making, right? How much do I bid? That's it. That's the only decision you make. You don't even decide what cards are going to come up. It's just a random pull of the deck. Sure. Well, you do decide which cards to use. Because in the game, it's not like you have 25 ones. Right. You have a card yeah. that's a 2, a card that's a 4, a card that's a 12. And so you could just pay the 12 or combine the 8 and the 4. And so often it's better to keep the little numbers so that you can increment bids better. Like if I'm stuck with a 20 and a 3, my, my bids are 3, 20, and 23. That's really bad. I don't have much flexibility. So th there's certainly some choice about uh, what, what cards to keep. So your decision is, how much do I bid? So that's kind of decision one. Decision two is with which cards. And so from the quantity definition, that's a boring decision space. But I think the quality of those decisions is what makes the decision space interesting, fun, etc. for I think all three of well, us. Well, right, and that's why I think the decision space is sort of what you're, like, the decision you're making, which is how much do I bid and which cards do I use, and then the why, right? Oh, I'm going to choose to bid 23 because that's the 7, and that's a pretty high value, and I can just use up my 20 right out of the gate. And so, or maybe I'll bid 20 in that case just to use a single card or something. You know what I mean? Like the why is that. And then I feel like eventually it'll start being, you know, there's certain games I think where it's going to be more feeling behind it. You know, oh, I, I want that faction because it just feels more, you know what I mean? Whereas High Society, it probably sounds almost mathy where you're, oh, I want that because this is what's left, or I think there's there have been two of the end game cards that have come out. I You know, it, the game's probably going to end soon. You know, all of those decisions. Each It almost probably gets more complicated as the game goes on, which is nice too, right? It kind of ramps up. So in this example, just coming off of something that uh, Robert said that I think is interesting, it's more advantageous to keep the smaller cards in your hand because then you can be more incremental. Is the game, going back to my wingspan example, then making more decisions for you at that point? Because if you blow all your low value cards early, you're stuck with all these high value cards and there's less decision space to engage with. Maybe, but here's the thing. I don't know if what I just said is true. Maybe there's a reason to play the high value card and I just don't realize it and somebody else does and that's why they're doing it. So. I think a lot of it has to do with how convinced you are that what you perceive as obvious is indeed obvious. And so, for instance, in you know, for you, Wingspan, me for Fort, I'm pretty convinced that it's definitely the right way. But with high society, for whatever reason, I'm not convinced. And so I feel like I can, like, I should try one time to, to bid with higher numbered cards and see what happens. Maybe there's something I'm totally missing. 
I think even if you start out high, somebody could go the next one up and then you have to either burn a little one in addition or just let it go. While Steve was talking, I had a thought about the quality of a decision being the number of reasons why you might make it. So in high society, it's not just, oh, I really want that card, so I'll bid a lot for it. There's also the option that you're bidding a lot for it to force somebody else to bid more than you think it's actually worth. You know, so that that's the same exact outcome, which is bidding, you know, $25,000 for this seven point card. But there are multiple reasons why you might do it. And so I think the number of whys can help us qualify how interesting a decision is, maybe. And then a secondary semi-related thought is, as we've been talking about decision space, I think it's very much a feeling for me. When I'm playing high society, I get almost into the mindset of a rich person who doesn't care about being frivolous and just spending. And I play completely from the gut. And if it was framed differently or if one or two rules were slightly different, I might play much more mathematically. Like Modern Art, another Knizia auction game, I play very mathematically. But for some reason, something about the decisions in high society, maybe it's the number of them, maybe it's how simple they are, makes me play with my gut. And that is just a more fun decision space for me to be in than, for instance, the mathematical one I find myself in while playing and modern that's, art. And that's, I think, a good example of how a slight rules tweak can really change the decision space because one of the, not the only difference, but one of the big differences between modern art and high society is you're not randomly flipping pieces of art from a centralized deck in modern yeah. art. You are strategically playing cards and you're trying to manipulate a market, which people are then engaging in and like bidding on in a very similar way to high society with obviously some caveats in there. I agree with you that I find the math a lot more engaging in high society. The one time we played modern art, it was very almost reserved. Like people were doing the math and saying, nah, you know, even if this you know piece of art does wind up winning and this is the most popular artist this season, It's not going to be worth me bidding any higher, but you play high society and people will just go insane on like a five. You're not going to win the game with this card, but people are bidding $30,000 for it. I'm thinking about how tied to like weight the decision space is. Like if a game has a really big decision space, does that make it a heavier game? But then at the same time, there's, there's rules like just the amount of stuff you have to think about, but that feels kind of like what we're talking about, right? That requires defining a decision. So, for instance, have we all played Lisboa? Yeah. In Lisboa, you you could sum it up as you just pick a card to play, and that card gives you two options, and that's your decision. Like, that's one way to present the decisions in that game, kind of taking a very macro view. But then there's the why. The nitty-gritty of it is... You pick a card to play, pick one of those two things, and then do seven other things based on that. Um, So I think we need to be really careful maybe when talking about the size of a decision space because you need to be consistent kind of of what's the, what is one decision? How large is that unit, if that makes sense? We can't be comparing grams to kilograms. 
figuratively. Can you, though? Like, can you ascribe a mathematical rating to a decision space the way that you can weight? Because really, weight, and I think that's one of the topics that we have on the list, is an arbitrary thing that there's not even necessarily a consensus on what makes one game heavier than another. You know, for some people, it is the decision space. For some people, it's the rules complexity. Can you ascribe a number two decision space, though? Well, again... I think a lot of people like to say, oh, in Lisboa, you have two or three cards and you pick which card to play, but then you make several other choices or there are, I mean, I guess there's ramifications, but it's sort of, you still have to know the why. And that's where I think it's, there's the decision that was made, but then there's the why of it. And it's, well, I play this card because I want that to happen and I want that to happen and I want that to happen. But if you don't understand all of that, your why might be shorter and I'm not exactly sure what I'm even getting at, but just like that, that kind of affects how somebody perceives the decision space. But it's also, yeah, I mean, it's not the same as weight. I just think there might be a relationship. It seems what you're getting at is that decision space isn't necessarily even directly related to branching paths. It's also directly related to the amount of knowledge that you have going into the experience and maybe even the amount of experience that you have because that will inform those decisions and broaden the decision space. Okay, let's use another recent Knitsia example that we I had, which was Cat Blues. I've played it twice now. Once was yesterday. And the first time, I kind of made the rookie move of melding too early. And you do that, and then you kind of run out of options. And so for me, the decision space the first time was very not fun. And it was just like, well, I, I, I can bid the one thing I have, you know, I, I really didn't understand it. And it just seemed like there wasn't much to even do. And I felt like I was very stuck. But then I kind of learned a little bit more about it. I learned a very critical tip of don't get rid of cards right away. You don't need to. And then it seemed much more interesting and competitive. I think that just goes to show how much the whys matter. So there could be 50 decisions in a game. But if you do not understand why to do any of them, you perceive there being zero decisions. You're not gonna. You, it's like impossible to think about something you don't understand. Yeah, or or it feels like you're just making a non-decision over and over and over again. Right. You're just ran, like if you, you're randomly picking between the fifty options, which may as well be the game flipping a fifty-sided die or coin or whatever for you. Whereas if you understand all 50 of those and why you would do them, then all of a sudden, whoa, there's fifty decisions here. Yeah, and it feels like a decision if you understand the costs and benefits and then you're actually weighing things against each other. And if you don't understand those, then it's a coin flip. Or it's our high example, which is you're making kind of the same decision over and over of how much do I bid? But then the why of it can give it the, the crunch, the depth, the, the interestingness. <laughs> I think a good example of that being done in a game is Great Western Trail, where you really have like one of two things really you're scrunching your nose at me <laughs> i'm scrunching my nose at great western trail and decision space in the same sentence but continue because there's not a lot of decisions but those decisions can cascade so it's like you can either go here or you can go here you go there you get this resource or this resource and it's just a lot of like a b choices so i don't necessarily think the game has a deep decision space but i think it wears its decision space fairly transparently on its sleeve i hadn't thought about the concept of how much a game tries to hide its decision space almost 
as though some games present themselves as being deeper or more complicated than they really are once you start playing, and even vice versa. So, for instance, Canizia's games present themselves as much simpler, like, oh, I just pick how much to bid, how hard could that be? And then you're just, like, sweating (laughs) over this decision. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so I hadn't thought about another kind of way to qualify decision space is how transparent is it? Does it line up with uh, the amount of rules or the amount of decisions? That's that's another way to think about it. There's also something about like the familiarity, which really leads to the why and stuff, and just learning the game. But for me, Great Western Trail, it, I I played it a couple times on BGA, and it seemed like there was a pretty common strategy once you started learning the game. Like when I would play it with really experienced people, it seemed like there was very common patterns, and so I was like, oh, okay. If I play this enough, I'll eventually start getting on that level. Um, but for for me, I I didn't quite see it all yet, you know. Yeah, I've played. Great and Trail maybe six times, and I think I've been playing autopilot from the third game forward, which just, again, could be because I'm bad, and I'm like, oh, this is obviously the right way to play, so I'll keep rinse and repeating this, and I'm making it boring for myself, for sure. But at the same time, this is maybe about that point where I don't understand the whys as well as somebody like Evan does, and so for me, the number of decisions feel smaller, while for him, they feel larger or more interesting. Um... Or it could just be a matter of personal taste, which is what this all comes down to in the end anyways, and why this whole thing is all rubbish, but we're talking about it anyways. Yeah, I mean, there's also uh, Caesar we just played that for us felt pretty not deep decision space. Or maybe you're so good at it that you're just already masterclass Caesar players. I really doubt that. I really doubt that's it. I doubt it too. But we should we should stop this just being yeah, a bad show the games we think are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and return to trying to define decision space. So we have quantity. That's kind of one axis. Let's see how how many dimensions this thing has now. Quality. And then transparency was another axis. Yeah, I don't really have anything more to say about the transparency thing, but I do think it's an interesting discussion point. So I, I guess it's like, like entertain me with your thoughts on that. But I, I do think I hadn't considered it until you vocalized it, that part of my enjoyment of some games is the way that they handle hiding that decision space, especially if it's a uh, quote unquote lighter game. So a good yeah. example of that is a lot of Kinitsia's games. The reason I like them is because they're very easy to teach. There's not necessarily a lot of balls in the air to keep track of, but you don't realize how many decisions you're going to have to make because of that you know, veneer of, oh, this is a very easy game. Even though I do like a lot of heavier experiences, I think Pipeline is kind of a good example of the opposite of that, where it's a game that looks very heavy and economical, and you're going to have to like lay a bunch of pipes together. But it all boils down to what are you going to do that's going to make you money? Is that the right move this turn? Yes, you want money, so do the thing that's going to make you money. We also brought up theme last time, and I think that the theme wrapped around those things might matter too, right? Like in a way if it can make my mental model of how they all connect together easier or make it easier to to digest in a way, does that make the decisions more like fun or interesting or just easier to grok? I don't know because I don't know that I even think about the theme of high society while I'm playing high society. I just see big number on card, spend lots on. I don't want Robert getting it. Oh man, this could so easily turn into a Knizia love tangent. And I, I'm trying so hard to not make that happen because I agree. I don't think about the theme 
kind of consciously. But when I look back on it, I feel like I was very immersed in that theme. You did mention feeling like you were just frivolously spending money. And that's yeah, what I mean. Exactly. Because that's the theme, you kind of, your decision space changes a little bit. Because you're like, well, I gotta just, I'm just going to throw money at it. Does that mean when Ra finally delivers at the end of the game, I'll feel like an ancient Egyptian pharaoh? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you walk like one and you talk like one, yeah, you must be. Yeah, I think, I think I'm thinking of decision space a bit more thematically than you two are expressing and Steve is getting at that because again yeah for me it very much is how do I feel while playing this and like I mentioned in high society it puts me in that space of being a frivolous spender when playing something on the opposite end of the spectrum that I love like on Mars a heavy euro game I feel like I'm organizing missions to and from Mars and like allocating those resources and that makes the decisions not just more interesting so i described the decision space as being an interesting one but it also means it's easier for me to remember and keep track of those decisions and so when i look at the game state i see you know seven branching paths whereas for somebody for whom it's all mumbo jumbo they see nonsense you know non-decisions and that's actually one of the reasons that i have never pursued learning lisboa as aggressively as i probably should i would like it i'm i'm fairly confident like it's a heavy game there's a lot going on in it but every teach i've watched i cannot hold the rules in my head because to me there's no thematic connection between the decisions that you're making and what you're doing it feels so disjointed to me whereas another um vital game that i think does a really really good job of messing the decisions with the theme is kanban mm. you're you're running an automotive factory there is a manager who's always on your heels if you're not keeping up with your learning and all of that just meshes together so so well even though a lot of people consider that to be a really really you know thinky heavy game for your mental load it doesn't rub me that way. It's just like, oh no, I need car parts, so of course I have to go here, and you know that's going to trigger this over here because it's cars. Kanban, especially the new EV one with Eno Tool Art, made me feel like I was in the auto factory so much that I sold it. I just, I just <laughs> didn't want to be in that decision space as often as, uh, as it was worth keeping it around, and so I got rid of it. So yeah, I think that that's a great example. I think Lisboa, check out the rulebook because it does explain some of the thematic ties a bit more. And for me, that helped. Like, I played a game and I was like, ah, oh, that was so hard to figure or like to get in my brain. But then I, I started reading the actual, like, the not the flavor text, but the little, you know, historical notes. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, I think that's also what I was going to say is it ultimately it all boils down to like it being fun. <laughs> and for you, that decision space wasn't, that particular one wasn't very fun. Um, but yeah, the, the, I think what I was getting at is theme seems very tied to the the transparency axes right you know mm. how how obvious is mm. the space how obvious is it what you're actually deciding you know because at the end of the day you might just be deciding do i pick a or b but if it's wrapped in this theme of the red army and the blue army or something you know what i mean that feels like a more not the blue <laughs> army see it makes it more interesting <laughs> <laughs> so and this might be getting a little too off topic, but does a bad theme negatively point out the decision space? Maybe a badly applied theme or an inappropriate theme or 
I'm trying to even understand the question because to me, I would frame the question kind of the other way. Does a bad theme set incorrect expectations for the decision space? Is that is that kind of what you're asking? Because I think that's definitely true. Yeah, you can certainly look at a game like there's this old Euro game whose original name I don't remember, but it's reprinted as Ariantis, and it's like these clouds with fairy people doing magic or something, and it's like a Italian Euro game from the early 2000s. So it's just like brutal in your face, you know, area control stuff. And to me, as somebody who likes the brutal area control stuff, I probably would not be as into it if I was playing it as Ariantis because I couldn't get into the decision space of a magical fairy or whatever. I don't know what that's like. I can't put myself there. And no matter how hard the mechanisms tried to put me there, I just couldn't get as into it as if it were the original beige, Italian, Roman theme. Fair, fair. So then I wonder, what are your favorite decision spaces that you have encountered in a game? If somebody asked you, what's your favorite decision space you've ever been in, what would it be? I need a moment. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's a podcast. I'll just (laughs) cut this out. Nobody will know. (laughs) And now for five minutes of silence. All right. Uh, They have taken their 10 second break. That's, that's, you know, plus or minus a few seconds. They needed 10 seconds. They have their answers. Go ahead. What are they? If anything, I had so many answers that it was like 10 seconds of pruning. I was actually going to say it it probably is high society, which I know (laughs) is a bit of a cop out. I, I just, I really like that game, but I think I'm like crossing my love of that game with the decision space conversation. Uh, I think my actual answer is going to be PAX Premier Second Edition uh, because I think that encapsulates the conversation really, really well. Um, A beginner to PAX is going to feel overwhelmed by how many decisions there are. Yeah. Someone that has played more is going to be able to kind of see through how obtuse the game is and be able to figure out a strategy. And the game is really. limber in the fact that you can pivot that strategy not necessarily on a dime but in some cases you can pivot on a dime which i think makes the decision space interesting because you have like your main strategy that you're going for but then there's also the possibility that you have this backup strategy in the back of your head which you can decide at any point to pivot to and that can be the difference between winning and losing the game and so i think for me it's probably pax pamir second addition all right i feel like this is one of those questions that my answer will change depending on when i answer it but right now the one that i enjoy the most i think is comic hunters and it's because i think it is a very simple game but then it changes up just enough and there's because it's different types of sort of auctions or drafting and pulling up cards and then the cards are just comic books that have some icons and you're just it's simple set collection but then the cards are also worth value and you use you like use the cards to pay for the other cards that you actually want to keep and put into your quote unquote collection. Hmm. And so it's all about building up this collection and at the end of the game you want to have the most impressive collection, but you have to sort of get other cards that you will sell and it all thematically ties into comic book collecting and you're actually going to the convention where the way you get comics is different than when you go on ebay and get them and that's a different type of drafting thing Mm. in the way you get them and then the way you have to kind of use them to pay for other ones and it's 
the game right now it has actual like marvel comic art and so there's a very emotional connection to oh man i really want that mcfarland spider-man you know i don't even know if it matters for my game but i you know i find myself wanting to almost craft my strategy towards the books that i actually want and that's where i think like that why kind of starts to get really interesting where i'm making bad game decisions just because i you know thematically it has it has me hooked my second answer was going to be to crypto because I think oh, nice. it's a cool word game of trying to really figure out what is your team going to get? What are they not going to get? How can I tie this? It's just the, the layers of it's it's kind of just a word game, but it's such an interesting way of setting it up that I it deserves a shout out, I think, in this. Yeah, actually, that's kind of a good shout because there's a lot of I, I think we've kind of ignored party games in this conversation and there's a lot of party games that do have not necessarily an interesting decision space, but a very like open-ended and obtuse one where, especially with word games, like I'm thinking code names here, your choice to say one ver- word versus another word could literally cost you the game. And that's usually the same decision over and over. Yeah. What word do I say? My pick for favorite decision space is bus the splatter from uh, 1999 i think should have seen that coming yeah i yeah. just love being there and i think it's for the reason that i find people endlessly interesting and so whatever this game was going to be my favorite decision space game it could not be anything that was remotely solitary it had to be a very interactive game mm-hmm. because i love being in the position of trying to understand what you want why you want it when you want it and i love the feeling in bus as masochistic as it is when i'm planning to do a then b then c and then after i've done b somebody swoops in and does c i'm i i hate them but i love hating them <laughs> it's just it's just a very fun i i feel like we're we're really playing we're we're interacting the game is kind of a medium for our interaction and and that is where i have the most fun not to mention you can just stop time in the middle of a game that is otherwise about building bus routes and transporting people. Yeah, there's no explanation for that, is there? Like, there is, no, there is. Just, there, no, there, oh, there is. There? There's, there's oh, a professor. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm pretty sure in the rule book it says there's, there's a professor who, who lent you his time machine. I'm not even kidding. It's in there. But just being Doc able Brown. to do that in the middle of a game makes the game just feel more alive to me, I think. Where I don't feel like I'm managing a bus company. I feel like I'm in this fantastical world where each bus holds one person and there's a professor with a time traveling machine. It's just it's just a great place to be in for me. And it always comes down to the people. You don't feel like you're in the bus company. You feel like you're in the magic school bus. Yeah, exactly. So what you're saying is in the why of your decisions, there would be a lot of like, because Evan is trying to do this and Steve wants yes. that thing there. Like there would be a lot of other people's names in your uh in your journal absolutely yeah yeah and that's kind of what i mean when i say i think people are endlessly interesting i'll get bored of a game after one or two plays if it's a puzzle of sequencing stuff in the right order even if the yeah. game is hitting me with random stuff but if other people can have a large impact in my game then my decision space kind of explodes because it's no longer kind of bound by the rules of the game because you're a person you could do something insane that a die roll would never do the other thing that I think works really well for bus is you can decide how much of your game is left because you're placing workers. And once you place that worker, you're never getting it back. You got 20 workers. Yeah. 
and that's it. So once like you could theoretically be out of the game in like three rounds if you wanted to go hyper aggressive and lose. <laughs> yes, it is wonderful. And I think this discussion has also been wonderful. But maybe we should wrap it up. I think so. so. People can get on with their days and play play games instead of listening to them. I like that. Absolutely. Uh, if you have been inspired by the conversation and would like to drop us a line, you can do so at cardboardphilosophypod at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for a question for a future episode, I would love to see some emails there. And uh, we'd like to do this bi-weekly, so be sure to tune back in in a couple of weeks. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, wherever it is you're listening right now. I'm rambling. But uh, thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it. And uh, go play something fun. <laughs>